Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist in a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, one quick thing before we start today. I gave away a couple weeks ago a book called Roadmap to Reconciliation by one of my mentors, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil. Uh, I have another copy to give away to someone who will read it today. And then also a copy of a really good new book called uh, Prophetic Lament by Sung Chan Ra, who is a, a theology professor. It's a very accessible a book about sort of the importance of lament as American uh, Christians. So I highly recommend both of these to you. Anybody interested in reading this book, Roadmap? To, okay, so Marquita. And then how about Prophetic Lament? Anybody interested in reading? Okay, so back. Okay, so Edith. Okay, great. Uh, so if you're here last week, this is part two of uh, this passage. Whenever... Um, we um, preach on a first Sunday. We always try to do two parts because we don't take a lot of time uh, on first Sundays with, uh, with the sermon. So we'll look a little bit more in depth at our passage this morning. My understanding is last week, Pastor Michelle, in this passage, she highlighted uh, the reality of rejection that Christians face when we follow Jesus, that it is a thing that happens, that we get rejected, and yet we are to, to not fear this and to continue to obey God's call. So we want to zoom out just a little bit today. If you remember, Mark is writing this gospel to a particular group of people. We think about this as just a book in the Bible, but when Mark wrote it, he was writing to some specific people that he had in mind. And scholars think that it's likely that Mark was writing this book, this story about Jesus, to an early church in the city of Rome. 
And if that's the case, then this early church was probably wrestling with its identity, with who it was. They lived, they existed within a Greco-Roman culture that didn't really know what to do with these new Christians. At times, this early Christian community would simply be ignored by the culture, and at other times, they would have experienced persecution. So one of the things that Mark does for this fledgling church is to show that they're actually in good company, that the misunderstanding and the opposition that they faced actually lined them up pretty well with their Savior. In fact, Jesus' confusing, unexpected, hard-to-pin-down identity is one of the very important themes throughout the Gospel of Mark. Mark regularly leads us into the confusion and the ambiguity of Jesus' slowly revealing identity. He wants us to see. He wants us to see how people identify Jesus. He wants us to see that how people identify Jesus mattered greatly. It mattered because how a person saw Jesus, how a person identified Jesus, greatly impacted how they would respond to Jesus. So Mark intentionally sets up our passage to give three different perspectives on Jesus' identity. First, we meet members of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. Last, we see King Herod's response to Jesus. And in between the two, Mark shows us the response of the twelve apostles to Jesus. By sandwiching the positive response of the disciples between the two defensive responses of the hometown and of Herod, Mark is reminding the Roman church that their experience of being misunderstood and maligned and persecuted was in fact normal for followers of Jesus. I wonder if we need this reminder as well. I'd say that the way of Jesus is as strange today in Chicago as it was then in Rome. Maybe the main difference is that those early Roman Christians understood that their faith made them strange to the surrounding culture, whereas oftentimes we expect to fit in. So we act surprised and even angry when we don't fit in. Regardless, though, of our expectations, the fact remains that the way of Jesus will always be a poor fit with the ways of our world. By setting up his passage the way he does, Mark wants us to see the secret to following Jesus in a world of hometown skeptics and deadly kings. And as is usually the case with Jesus, the secret is both ridiculously simple and seemingly impossible. It's this secret that opens the door to a life with God, and it is the secret to experiencing this life fully and joyfully, even when misunderstanding and opposition abounds. Before we get to that secret, though, let's look how Mark sets this up. And I think we have a a map that we can just remind ourselves of where we are. After a time of ministry in Capernaum, Jesus brings his disciples back to the town where he grew up, Nazareth. And as was customary for Jesus, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, he went to the local synagogue in Nazareth and he taught. 
And as word spread around Nazareth that the now famous hometown boy had returned, people began to ask about his identity. Essentially, they're asking, who is this? Likewise, in the third story, the news about Jesus reaches Herod Antipas. And we don't know exactly where Herod was at this time, but he made his capital in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, so maybe that's where this happens. Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, that king who was in charge at Jesus' birth. And now his son, Antipas, ruled the Galilean region, the northern region of Israel. And as Herod Antipas hears things about what Jesus is doing in his region, he also asks, who is this? Mark sets this passage up so that anonymous working class people and the most powerful person in the region are both asking the same question. Who is this? They're going to answer the question slightly differently, but their answers will lead them to similar responses to Jesus. They will oppose him and they will misunderstand him. When Jesus returns to his hometown in Nazareth, he's met by people who know him and his story well. They know his mother, his sisters, and his brothers. And they use this intimate family knowledge to belittle him. Isn't this the carpenter? They ask. The hometown won't acknowledge that Jesus is a teacher with authority who now has a reputation around Galilee. Instead, they choose to remember him by his former occupation, the occupation of his father. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, they ask? And by leaving out Joseph, the crowd is insinuating intentionally that Jesus' birth was illegitimate. In a not-so-subtle way, they're calling him a bastard. Isn't this Mary's son? Who is this? The hometown crowd answers its own question. This is Jesus, the carpenter, the son of a single mother. Who does he think he is? And it seems that Herod is also wondering about Jesus' identity. Just as word had reached His father, 30 years earlier, about that royal baby born in Bethlehem. Now the son, Herod, was hearing about a man whose teaching and powerful actions were attracting large crowds. It must have brought flashbacks to Herod Antipas. You see, years earlier, when Antipas had been appointed ruler of Galilee by the Romans, he built his capital in Tiberias over the site of an ancient cemetery. And the Jews despised Herod Antipas for building such a religiously unclean site. And so Herod tried to compensate for this by adding on to the temple in Jerusalem that had been built by his father. But instead of attracting the praise and the crowds that he desired, instead he was upstaged. He was upstaged by a prophet in the wilderness. John the Baptist, wearing camel's hair and eating locusts, managed to attract greater crowds than Herod ever did. Herod 
was upstaged once and it seemed that it was happening again. And he wondered, who is this person I'm hearing about? Is it Elijah? Is it a different prophet from the past? Is it John the Baptist come back to life after I had him decapitated at a dinner party? We're not told exactly which of these options Herod preferred, but the result is the same as with the hometown skeptics. Jesus can be treated as a curiosity. His message of a coming kingdom of righteousness and justice can safely be ignored. Now, in the middle of these two stories of rejection is the story of the disciples' risky obedience. Unlike the hometown skeptics, unlike that anxious king, the apostles take Jesus deadly seriously. Earlier, when Jesus had first called his disciples, Jesus had promised to send them out to rescue people from evil. And now, for the first time, we see that he does it. And Mark records that calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. This is an emergency rescue mission. And so the apostles are sent with nothing. And they do it. They go. They obey. Implied in this middle story is the same question as the surrounding stories. Who is this? What is the identity of this man who the disciples are willing to trust so completely that they'll leave everything behind and trust that their needs will be provided for? Now, Mark's not ready to completely answer that question for us yet. That won't happen until chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. But, But here he gives us quite a bit. Who is this? Well, first, Mark answers, this is Jesus, the one with all authority over evil. In the Jewish tradition of that day, and actually carrying it to our day as well, a teacher, a leader, a prophet, a rabbi would always appeal to a leader of the past for his or her authority. The teacher, the leader, the prophet would acknowledge whose authority they were drawing from in order to teach and to lead. Jesus doesn't do this. He teaches, he leads, he proclaims, he exhibits his power from his own authority. He claimed power over evil based on his own authority. This makes the religious leaders nervous. The only one who doesn't need to appeal to someone else's authority, is God himself. This seems to be exactly what Jesus is doing. He gave them authority over impure spirits. So when Herod and when the Nazarenes ignore and oppose Jesus, they're ignoring and opposing the one who claims to have all authority over evil. Who is this? Mark answers a bit more. This is Jesus. This is the one whose authority over evil extends through his disciples. 
Not only does Jesus have authority to defeat evil, for the first time we see that this authority also flows through his followers and that they too have authority over evil. There was a Jewish law at this time that said, the sent one is as the man who commissioned him. In other words, When Jesus commissioned his disciples, they became his representatives. But because it was Jesus, the commissioned disciples didn't just represent doctrine or policy. They represented power. Jesus' power over evil. This, I think, is why they were sent two by two. In Jewish law, a witness could legally testify to the truthfulness of an event. And so in this case, the disciples could testify, as they will in verse 30, that Jesus' authority over evil had indeed flowed through them, his commissioned ones. They will testify that evil fled at their command. In just a minute, we're going to get to what Mark thinks the secret is between the response of the disciples to Jesus and the very different responses made by Herod and the skeptics. But first, we need to notice just how significant these different responses are. And here, I hope you'll insert yourselves into the story and wonder about your own responses to Jesus. By recognizing Jesus as the one who had self-generated authority over evil, the disciples became conduits for God's power to rescue and liberate others. By submitting to the one with the power to defeat evil, they aligned themselves with God's coming kingdom and with the freedom available by it. I need you to see how important this is. Do you see the radically different implications in how Herod and the skeptics respond to Jesus and how the disciples responded? We live in a world that is racked by evil. One of the sites we visited in Israel was the wall and fence that is being built to separate the Palestinian territories from the country of Israel. It's a stark reminder of the great evil and sorrow and sin that runs through that place and every place, literally dividing people from one another. Closer to home, maybe you read the story a couple weeks ago, that in Chicago, 47% of young African-American men are either unemployed or not in school. The season of Lent brings us close to ourselves, and we see the ways in which evil has intersected with our own lives, of how you and I have succumbed to sin, of how we have been affected and impacted by it. The people of Nazareth, the people in Herod's royal court, were surely aware of the evil all around them. At the very least, they would have had to acknowledge the horrors of Rome's occupying 
armies and governors. And yet for different reasons, when the opportunity for rescue and freedom came, they turned away. They found it easier and safer to belittle Jesus, to ignore Jesus, than to take him seriously, than to take seriously the kingdom of righteousness and justice that he was proclaiming. They chose rejection instead of repentance. This is what is at stake here. This is what is at stake in our responses to Jesus. You and I can choose insecure rejection. We can choose prideful cynicism. Or with the disciples, we can risk that in Jesus, we can risk that in Jesus, the evils of this world will not have the final say. And when we take that risk, we will find that not only must evil bow to the authority of Jesus, we will also find that evil must submit to Jesus' authority through us. Okay, I'm going to just take a break. Everybody sit up. Move around a little bit. Shake your shoulders. Just, I need you to stay awake for like 10 more minutes. This is important stuff. Let me say this again. When we take the risk of responding to Jesus as the disciples did, we will find that evil must bow to Jesus but we will also find that evil must submit to Jesus' authority through us. This is what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians 5 when he calls us ambassadors of Jesus. We represent Jesus and his kingdom, his salvation, his power, and his authority. And just as Jesus promised, the gates of hell cannot stand against us. This means... That this morning, if you're a Christian, then you must speak with the authority of Jesus over your family, over your marriage, over your children. This means that if you're a Christian, then you must act with the authority of Jesus in your classroom, in your workplace. This means that you must move with the authority of Jesus in your neighborhood, no matter what is happening in your neighborhood. This means that you pray with the authority of Jesus over the violence in our city. The authority and power of Jesus is meant to flow through you. Does it? I think if we're honest, much of the time, you and I do not live with that authority. I think much of the time, if we're honest this morning, you and I live something more close to a defeated life than a victorious life. We often move through this life as though evil will in fact have the final say. Not as though our Savior has already won. As we acknowledged at the beginning, how we identify Jesus greatly determines our response to him. 
Jesus' hometown identifies him as a self-promoting nobody. Herod identifies him as a religious curiosity. And by identifying him in these ways, they can safely ignore him, and yet in doing so, they have completely missed out on the experience of God's victory over evil. The disciples, on the other hand, they identify Jesus as the one with the intrinsic power over evil. And because of this, because they've identified him in this way, they cannot help but respond to him with great sincerity and obedience. This response puts them in the middle of God's battle to defeat evil. A battle that is now advancing through them, through their words, their prayers, their actions, their decisions. So what's the secret? What's the difference between the hometown and Herod on the one hand and the disciples on the other? You've maybe noticed it already. This is not rocket science. The answer is faith. Faith is what differentiates the response of the disciples from the responses of the hometown skeptics and Herod. Faith is what allows the disciples to leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And faith is what allows the authority of the Son of God to be manifested in the lives of those 12 ordinary people. Jesus makes this very explicit in Nazareth. He was amazed, the passage tells us, at their lack of faith. The story of Herod, it's a bit subtler. But here Mark is telling the story of John the Baptist's arrest and execution in a manner that mirrors Jesus' own arrest and execution. He was reminding the early church of the faith that was required to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for their salvation. And here's what's important about these two examples. And here's what's maybe hard for us to acknowledge this morning, but is, I think, important. In both of these instances, Jesus lived down to their lack of faith. With both the skeptics and with Herod, Jesus met their expectations didn't have any expectations of him. And he met those expectations. Again, I hope you're inserting yourself into the story here. In Nazareth, Jesus performed only a few of the mighty deeds that he had become known for. And again with Herod, Jesus remained nothing more than a curiosity, not deserving of any real respect or attention. So in a strange way, what they expect of Jesus is confirmed for them. It's only the disciples whose small steps of faith placed them in risky and vulnerable situation. It was only they who experienced the power of God. Whereas Jesus had lived down to the lack of faith of Herod and his hometown, with the disciples he lived up to and exceeded the faith they had placed in him. How you identify Jesus determines how you will respond to him. 
Your response will either accept evil and its devastations as a normal part of this life, or you will join Jesus in advancing his kingdom of righteousness and justice. It matters how you identify Jesus. And the secret to joining Jesus is simply and impossibly to place our faith over and over and over again, to place our faith in Him. Over the years, as a pastor, I've walked with many women and men who stand on the edge of faith. Sometimes they're hearing the invitation to leave everything behind and follow Jesus for the very first time. And sometimes they are hearing God's invitation to step very specifically into something new that will require faith. Something that is simultaneously beautiful and terrifying. And over the years, I have experienced countless of these edge-of-faith moments myself. And what I want to say this morning, what I hope you'll believe this morning, is that in every single one of these instances, I have watched as Jesus lives down to a person's lack of faith. And I have watched as Jesus wildly exceeds a person's small steps of faith. Hear this very clearly. I don't mean that God has some arbitrary faith scale, as though a certain amount of faith is required to compel God to act. No. The disciples are our good reminder here. Their fickle and tiny faith is simply placed in Jesus. This is what matters. What matters is that we choose to place whatever faith we have this morning in Jesus and then to act on that faith. What matters is that we respond with the faithful sincerity of the disciples and not with the cynicism and skepticism of Jesus' hometown. I'm almost done. My sense this morning for many of us is that the ways in which we're currently experiencing the Christian life leave us feeling a little deflated. Leave us feeling uh, a little bit as though our expectations are not being met. I know that's not true for all of us. Some of us this morning could jump to our feet and tell great stories of amazing things that God is doing in our lives right now. But my hunch is that for many of us, there is a tepidness about our faith, about our experience of God's power. My guess is that many of us would struggle this morning to testify specifically to the last time you saw God's power work mightily through your life. I want to suggest this morning that it could be as simple as placing whatever faith you currently have in Jesus once again and then acting on that faith.
you all are a bunch of really smart people. Most of you, many of you, have more degrees than I will ever have. I'm like looking at individual ones of you right now. We, as a church, can tend to overthink things. We can get really stuck in our heads. We can need to walk all the way around the thing to understand it. We can need to feel like we can explain every nuance and every caveat of this life of faith before we can step into it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And there's a lot that's really good about that. One of the things I love about our church is that you all do not check your brains at the door. The shadow side of that, though, is that you and I can get frozen up. When we hear the call to faith, rather than step into it, we pull back, and we examine, and we question, and then we get distracted. As a result, we're not experiencing the power and authority of Jesus in our lives. This morning, I want to invite you specifically to step in faith into whatever God is calling you to with the hope and the promise that the authority of Jesus needs to be exhibited in and through your life, in your friendships, in your marriages, in your neighborhood, where you work in our city. We are desperately needing a group of people who can speak and act with the authority of heaven. Amen? Okay, I'm just going to, there's some other stuff here. I'll leave it. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray for you. And I want you to take a couple minutes of silence. So close your eyes, bow your head. And, 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 and I'd like to ask you to please ask God to speak to you right now and to show you at least one step of faith that you can take today. And it could be for some of us that it's the very first step of faith in our life, saying yes to Jesus for the first time. For many of us this morning, I have to believe that God has already been speaking to you, that God has already been showing you places where you, you can step out into faith and speak and live and act with the authority of Jesus. Will you do it today? Just a couple minutes of silence. God, please speak to our hearts right now. Show us how we can say yes to you, how we can step out in faith. We need, we need to know your power and authority in our lives, God.